Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. I believe it's episode five. And today uh, we are pillaging once again, uh, not the U.S. Senate. Ben Sass is not here. Uh, I understand he's on a three-state killing spree. Instead, uh, we are pillaging the offices of the Weekly Standard, and we've got one of my absolute favorite writers and favorite people in the world. He is, uh, I don't know what flavor of Protestant he is, but he's an all-around mensch. And uh, and a wonderfully talented writer and, and all-around decent guy, Andy Ferguson, a senior writer at the Weekly Standard who's been around Washington for a long time. And we're delighted to have him. And we're going to go to him now. We have with us my friend and uh, one of my odd heroes, Andy Ferguson from the Weekly Standard and other places. Uh, it's Andy, so odd about me being a hero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this raises, this is this is funny. My wife and I have been, you know, the fair Jessica. Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, we have been toying with this regular feature of questions my wife wants to ask you. And so the first one, first one we came up with was for Steve Hayes, and it was something on the lines of how difficult it is it to be interviewed by somebody so good looking, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> In this one, it's a little more serious. She actually brought this up unbidden. She wanted to know, she wanted me to ask you, why is it that everybody loves you? <laughs> Obvious answer, lovability. <laughs> <laughs> On the lovability index, I'm like an 11, <laughs> I think. Well, but no, it's a, it's a strange, I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange thing, right? So Steve, who I promise will not be a regular theme throughout this podcast. No, it's fine. He's my boss. I'm happy to... Well, I do have a question later about that, but um, Steve, when he does his talks about journalism and stuff, he says that he built his entire career model around Fred, Fred Barnes. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't say that I built my career model around you. If I did, I failed at it. But you're one of the few guys, when people ask, have asked me, so what route do you want to take? And even though you write sort of different stuff, you've been a profile writer for a long time and all that kind of stuff. You're one of the only guys who has completely not sold out in any <laughs> any discernible way, right? I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I am having such a good time. <laughs> I'd love to be complimented like that. Oh. Actually, you know, there are a lot of people who don't like me, and uh, a lot of people who I tend to avoid. Usually, people I've written about, like the guys from the New Republic in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Although I saw Andrew Sullivan the other night, and we we were cordial. But yeah, I mean those guys, yeah, and you know sometimes they get really, really mean about it, you know, and they go to your bosses or they try and get you fired and stuff like that. Who who is that? You're allowed to disclose who has tried to get you fired? Bill Moyers. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a badge of honor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> In fact, when I my first book was a collection of magazine articles, and I wanted to, uh, he had written a letter to the New Republic about an article I'd written insulting him, and. Uh, he in, took out a double truck ad, a two-page ad in the New Republic to to rebut my article, and one of the lines was, "If he, in fact, the last line was, if he were a gentleman, I would, I would take him to a duel. I would challenge him to a duel." And I thought that was so great because it's like such a double whammy. If he were a gentleman, <laughs> I would kill him. Right, you know, but he's not even <laughs> worth killing. And uh, so I wanted to put that on the front of the book, Bill, you know, Bill Moyers, and for some reason they thought that was too perverse. 
It sort of reminds me, I, I use this in speeches all the time when I get some generous introduction. I always say, as a matter of personal privilege, I'm kind of ruining this for all my future speeches. But I always point out that when the LA Times picked me up as a columnist, Barbara Streisand publicly canceled her subscription in protest. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, is so oh, real. That is, that is a badge of honor <laughs> yeah. right there. Um, well, I, I, uh, I got introduced the other night for something by Grover Norquist, who I've known for 30 years. And uh, the entirety of Grover's introduction went, our next speaker is uh, Andrew Ferguson, who once wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln, uh, who is responsible for the first income tax and the estate tax, both of which we will be eliminating by the end of the year. Here's Andy. <laughs> Thanks, Grover. Was, I'm touched. I'm touched. Well, you have to, the one thing you have to say about Grover, whether you love him or hate him, wherever you come down on him, he stays true to character. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I've ever seen him out of character. My dad used to sometimes compare him to uh, to Vladimir Lenin, who had nothing in his house that would distract him from the revolutionary struggle. <laughs> right. Well, now he's got kids, so there, there's That's nothing true. that distracts you from the revolutionary struggle. Like yeah. Now he has extra dependent tax write-offs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would think of them. Sure. So you, as far as I could tell, um, I was I was talking to my minion Jack earlier. As far as I could tell, you don't really ever use you don't you don't use labels a lot when it comes to political philosophy stuff right yeah i don't i don't a why is that and b if you had to label yourself what would you label yourself as um oh i just the second question first i'm i'm just a conservative i mean i no neo paleo or conservative or anything like that I, so that's all i call myself <laughs> as ambiguous as that may be these days sure but the the it's interesting observation about that. I, I really do kind of try and stay away from, you know, liberals do this or, you know, conservatives should do this. Or um, I don't think I ever used the term the left, for example, which strikes me as depersonalizing and, and just too, um, too blunt to really make any kind of argument with. Um, so this sounds awfully namby-pamby. But I think it's better if you, for the reader, I mean, you have a better chance of seducing the reader if you don't all of a sudden set things up in opposition to each other mm -hmm. and instead try and, um, you know, bring them along, jolly them along as, as far as you can. And then, you know, when you have to lower the boom, lower the boom. Say nice doggy uh, until you can find a rock. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I've always, I've always um, avoided that, you know, I, I worked for a while at Bloomberg News and wrote a column there. And Bloomberg had a rule. It was run by this very, very intense man named Matt Winkler. And Winkler, who used to be at the Wall Street Journal, and Winkler laid down a law that no one could use the term liberal or conservative in hmm. copy, even even the opinion columnists like me. So if I would refer to AEI or, yeah. or something, I would have to say the identifier would have to be pro-free market AEI right, or right, anti-regulation right. AEI or something like that. And I thought that was really a great, great rule. But it was totally ineffectual because then, as now, Bloomberg runs some of the most blatantly biased news coverage yeah. in the world. So, you know, not using the labels didn't seem to have much effect. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little more, I mean, not necessarily for how you do things or for what you write, but as a general proposition, I'm more pro-label because... 
the whole idea that labels don't matter is another way of saying that words don't matter, yeah, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And you could go too far with the sort of reifying thing that you're talking about and making people into abstractions. I agree with that. But um, now it kind of reminds me, when I started the LA Times column, there was, I, I will not reveal his name, um, but the chief copy editor hated it whenever writers used the word American because he was from Canada. Uh and so he always tried to change. So he's not a real American. Exactly. Yeah. And he would always try to change American to United States. And it, the, got, it got to the point of parody where I was like, you do know that no one uses the phrase anti-United States, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, like, sometimes the word is the word because that's what people use as the word, right? You know, yeah. it's also it's, it's a terrible adjective, you know. Right. He's a United Statesian. Um, it's Truth, a, justice in the United States way. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. So, you know, also, I, I have to, one other thing what you said about labels, this isn't quite to your point, but a friend of mine told me a, a great story about um, when George H.W. Bush was running for president in 79 and 80 against Reagan, and he was working for him, and he said, you know, we've really got to figure out what you want to call yourself, you know, are you sort of a liberal Republican, uh, you know, Cold War Republican, you know, he, says, he said, labels are for cans. <laughs> and he said, once he said that, I knew I was in the presence of a liberal Republican. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because whenever I talk about the, the no label stuff, I, I always say, look, if you think labels are utterly meaningless... Go home tonight and remove all the labels from your canned goods and cleaning <laughs> supplies and see, and then right. let nature take its course. Right, right. You right. Know, they have some utility. Are there any conservatives who say, oh, I don't want to be labeled? I mean, it seems to be, you know, like this this organization, no labels. It's all liberals, right? So, Or liberal Republicans. Or liberal, right. yeah. Although I, I, I do think there's a major strain of that in, in Trumpism. Right. You know, he says, yeah, I'm a conservatism, yeah, yeah, but yeah. not much of, you know, but what does it matter? We got to get things done. Right. 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 And he always says, I'm flexible. Ideology is not the big, big ideal. And it is a kind of right wing populist, no labelsism. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. What matters is the wins. Yeah. It's sort of like in Hollywood, you know, when you see an interview with some actor and, and uh, they t ask him about politics, he says, you know, I'm not really political. I'll let other people do the politics. Right. You know, he's a conservative. <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's yeah, 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 yeah. It's like uh, people who say, on the other hand, people who say they're socially liberal but fiscally conservative. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <They're> just, <laughs> they don't exist. It's yeah. like a heffalump, you know? Exactly. Um, which, which, if you take to its logical extension, means that you are not actually willing to put your money where your mouth is when it comes to your, your principles, <laughs> you know? <laughs> which we right. know is not actually true either, but right. anyway. Right. So one of the things that you write a lot about, where I'm just looking for places where I can disagree with you, one of the things you seem to heap a lot of scorn or at least skepticism on is evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. Now, do you think it's all BS, mostly BS, partially BS? Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I'm, thank you for allowing me to clarify that because I've had people say that I'm an anti-evolutionist and, and I'm not at all. I mean, evolution looks perfectly reasonable to me, I mean, as an explanation for this incredible variety in the world, in the universe, in fact, not that I've been too far into the universe. Uh, and so not I... Not sober. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent point. You didn't know me in college, but... <laughs> I had suspicions. I hear right. things. But I, I think that there, that there is a kind of imperialism to a lot of these uh, in, um, evolutionary psychologists in which they try and apply 
the reasoning and the mechanisms of, of sort of Darwinian natural selection to parts of life that really aren't receptive to it, particularly about human beings and, and why human beings do what they do and um, uh, the, the sort of makeup of the human psychology, I think, is probably something that is exceptional about human beings and isn't really subject to that kind of analysis. So, okay, but so back to my question then, is, is, it, is there no merit to evolutionary psychology? I mean, you surely believe in human nature, right? You can't be a conservative right. and I think there's something called human nature. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I just don't, uh, I've never been convinced that they uh, can describe human nature or they can account for human nature in evolutionary terms. Okay, so and and well, that, that that would be a logical fallacy. But anyway, no, I'm sorry. I take it back. Whatever I was going to say, I take it back. Okay. Um, uh, let me put it another way: uh, the the drive to procreate, right? You don't think you can explain it partially through evolution? Partially, terms? sure, sure. I mean, I'm sure that there's an analog to it. Uh -huh. um, the purpose: human beings do not do what they do simply to which I think is sort of the premise of all evolutionary psychology, do what they do simply to reproduce themselves. Oh, uh, that, okay. they're, they're not, as, as one of them said, you know, genes using this body to perpetuate more genes. That's, that, and that's what it eventually comes down to. And so you get really awful kinds of things like, you know, why do human beings produce music? Right. And so you have this literature about them trying to account for some kind of auditory signal that, you know, evolved from a warning about a predator approaching or some crap like that. You know, it's just, that's a part of the human makeup that isn't really, evolutionary psychology can't tell us anything about. And there's all kinds of stuff like that. And, and they're sort of getting wrapped around their own axle now because a lot of people have criticized them on the grounds that they can't really explain altruism. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a big debate on whether altruism can apply to groups mm -hmm. or whether it's simply an individual organism that is um, being altruistic for whatever evolutionary psychology reason that they can come up with. Yeah, I mean, on the altruism thing, I mean, the, the I am with you. I'm probably not as skeptical of evolutionary psychology as you are. And for listeners who don't know, evolutionary psychology is basically the idea that human behavior, human psychology today can be explained in terms of how we evolved and adapted in our natural habitat hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. And, um, um, and so I, I, I'm skeptical of where people take it. Like I remember you giving Steven Pinker a hard time for mm -hmm. calling music nothing more than auditory cheesecake. Yeah. And I, I, I'm with you on that. And also on the altruism thing, one of the things that confounds people What's funny is that evolutionary psychology has the same problems that uh, Homo economicus has, mm -hmm. right? And and I looked into this once. There are very few people who actually ever argued. It's, it's, it's ascribed to, I think, Bentham, but no one is, and, and Adam Smith, who certainly didn't believe in Absolutely. Homo, yeah. <laughs> Homo right. economicus. Right. These monocausal explanations of human behavior are always going to fall short somewhere, right? And so, like with Homo economicus or evolutionary psychology and the altruism thing, I always like to ask people, so why do I leave tips at restaurants in cities that I'm never going to return to. Right. Right? I mean, if it's purely for the status, right. then I can see why I would tip lavishly at a bar I'm going to keep going back to or when I'm eating with other people and I want them to see how generous I am. But if I'm right. never going to be there again, why would I tip the waiter 
in Yadahe Flats, Nebraska. Right, um, right. And it turns out that there are other ideological, you know, uh, ideological is a misleading word. There are other cultural and, and norms and values and morals that factor in that get built on top of human nature. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. I mean, it's sort of the opposite. I mean, the evolutionary psychology principle would be, you know, nobody ever washes a rental car. Right. You know, but what you're talking about is exactly the opposite that I don't think that they can account for. The other thing is I just think it's suspect as science. Years ago, I went into, I think it was about Pinker. Pinker had made some kind of claim about how human beings behaved in the Serengeti, you know, the savanna that we all came from. And I was already a little skeptical about that because you could see people arguing both ways. For example, why do we love golf courses? Right. Well, it's because it's it's green and it's open. And so we could see any predators that might happen to be approaching. And so now we've taken that to contemporary life and that's so we like golf. It's also explained why are there trees on a golf course? Well, because early man needed places to hide. <laughs> and when we are out in the Serengeti and so we needed clumps of bushes and things. So that's why we have, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it, it's six, one half dozen of the other. They, they can explain it round or explain it flat and it, it doesn't really matter. When you really start to dig into these sort of flights of fancy, and you try and find, okay, what evidence do they have for how we behaved in the Serengeti, how the first man, first human behaved? And the fact is, we don't really know yeah. much about it at all. So where do they get their data? Well, they get their data from a series of very small-scale uh, anthropological studies, a lot of them done in the 30s, some of them have been done more recently, of primitive tribes in Africa or in, you know, Malaysia or somewhere like that. And then they extrapolate from that 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 is how, because they're so primitive, their behaviors and their their habits and styles of living are exactly what we would have seen on the Serengeti, which is just not, not so. I mean, it's just crazy, but it's one of the premises of the whole movement. Okay. I mean, all right, so I'll push back a little bit. I mean, it seems to me the analogy I always use is, and I think I've already mentioned this on this short live podcast already. One of my favorite lines is from Hannah Arendt, where she says, every generation, Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children, right? <laughs> right. And anybody who's had kids, one of the first things that goes out the window, it seems to me, is how you could believe in the blank slate, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this, these, these things come preloaded with a lot of software, right? Yeah, yeah. But... This, as they get older, they need an enormous number of updates um, to the software, and that's where parents come in, right? Right. But there are these things. I think his name is Dun. Is it no? That's Dunbar's number. There's another guy who talks about human universals, and there are certain universal character traits that cultures that exist literally in every society that has ever been recorded, right? And it seems to me, I mean, again, we're not really arguing with each other because um, I agree with you that the Evolutionary psychology stuff can be taken too far, but one of my problems with the pushback on evolutionary psychology is that it's actually a, a confirmation of a very old conservative argument, which is that human nature exists, man has fallen, right, you know, sure, sure, we have sure. animal instincts, and that Absolutely. it takes reason to conquer them, right? right reason right. and morality, right? Rightly formed consciences, as the Catholic right. might say. Right, and, right. Um, and so I remember 
What's that guy, DeWall, the guy who does chimpanzee politics? DeWall, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like his books, but he has this whole straw man thing in, in one of them where he talks about how conservatives may be shocked to find out that there is a morality to human nature and that there's morality in chimpanzees and that we have um, certain moral and, – and, and that – anyway, he goes on and on and on describing – Almost exactly what the conservative position is is that we do have a moral sense. Right? I mean, James Q. Wilson. Yeah, he wrote the ads on this, right? Right, right. And and so it is far more a threat to sort of the Rousseauian tradition. Yes, of, of the perfectibility of man, right? The blank slate that we're all malleable. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, then it is. That, it's not a threat to conservatism, as far as I can. Right. Understand. I mean, and and even non-conservatives like Pinker will acknowledge that. For example, Pinker says that. Evolutionary psychology proves or disproves the whole language theory of learning, mm -hmm. of, of teaching kids how to read. And, and the phonetics actually is much more in keeping with what evolutionary psychology would tell us about how people um, learn to read or should learn to read. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's overlap and people can take refuge in evolutionary psychology when they get uh, assaulted for believing in human nature. Uh, I just think that it's kind of a package deal. It's essentially materialistic mm -hmm. and scientific. And reductionist. And reductionist, yeah, yes. Yeah. And and you you can't play in that sandbox for too long before you're really going to have to face up to the, the reductionism of mm -hmm. it. And that fact that it doesn't really, if it's true, it doesn't really, by its very nature, allow room for things like altruism or love of music or... So on. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I think that civilization, as we understand it, is sort of an em what they call an em emergent property. Yes, and it comes out of a lot of stuff. And the sort of idea that you get some in evolutionary psychology, which reinforces that sort of hippie stuff that you write about a lot. That if it feels good, do it. If it's natural, it's, it's the naturalistic fallacy yeah. sometimes taken to an extreme. That, that's right? exactly right. Yeah. And the whole point of civilization is to say we have this nature the whole point of religion is to say we have or most religions i should say mm -hmm. is to say uh certainly christianity we have this nature but we can be better than our nature here are some arguments for why right right, right. and 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 so i don't think there's a conflict there i just think it's something that like any monocausal explanation of anything you can take it too far all right so now a much more important question uh more important than what is human nature yes and why are we here and all yeah. that okay is there any such thing? This is a quiz. Like, you know, Hugh Hewitt on his radio show, he will ask people whether or not Alger Hiss was guilty, or when it was. Is it the Rosenbergs or Alger Hiss? Hiss, yeah. And um, I'm, I'm a little worried about the Scottsboro Boys. To tell you. <laughs> fair, fair. We can get into that. Is there any such thing as a vodka martini? No. <laughs> oh my God! I just had this argument the other day. It's it, it, no. Okay. Short answer: No. Okay. Because. This is this to me. I think is going to be a new line in the sand question <laughs> on, on this podcast. Uh, for listeners who don't know, why don't you why don't you explain for people who well, the, the the uninitiated? Well, a, a, um, a martini is made with gin. That's how that's how you <laughs> <laughs> describe it. If, if there's vodka in it, it's not a martini. Although one thing I did, uh, speaking of the bushes again, the bushes ancestral cocktail. Uh huh is a martini. They call it a martini, but I think they call it a victory martini because Prescott Bush invented it on VE Day or something like huh. that. And it's half gin and half vodka. And then, of course, whatever amount of vermouth 
that okay. you throw into it. So this is very interesting. Um, we're going to get back to this in a second. But my friend Scott Hall, we'll see how long it takes for this pod, news of this podcast mention to reach him. He's a fundraiser for Hillsdale College, and he's a good friend of mine. He is listed in some lists as the inventor of the Scott Hall Martini, which they used to serve at the what used to be the Four Seasons in Seattle, which is now, I guess, the Fairmont. And it is 50% gin, 50% vodka. That's it. Chilled to 33 degrees. Wow. <laughs> and, and it is... No, is, no, no vermouth at all. No, no, no. You can say the word vermouth like three times over, <laughs> over it. But it's... Um, the two flavors are non what The combination and, and the temperature, they basically erase all taste. And you're just basically drinking cold air. Yeah, um, right. And it's, it's not bad, but again, it's not really a martini, right? Yeah. Um, it's also, it also sounds like a real alky drink, you know? I mean, yeah. it's sort of like you go to the bar and say, give me half a glass of gin, <laughs> half a glass of vodka, and I'll be okay. <laughs> it's just not. But for listeners who don't know, the martini, great violence was done to the concept of the martini by a James Bond. Mm-hmm. who asked for a vodka martini shaken, not stirred, all that nonsense. And up until then, the vodka martini was sometimes known as the vodka teeny and sometimes known as the kangaroo. Yeah, and the silver bullet. And the, I did not know about the silver bullet. Um, Judge Bork, who we both knew back in the day, he came up with the Bork martini, which I'm now trying to remember. All I remember for sure was, I think... I think you were supposed to put the the bottle of vermouth very close to the glass, <laughs> um, and you weren't allowed to have any greenery in it because that was for salad. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> but Bork wrote a great thing for National Review during the Lewinsky impeachment stuff, saying how as society crumbles, the one thing we can all turn to is the comforts of alcohol, <laughs> and did this whole thing on the Bork martini. Um, I'm in favor of that. I'd also heard him say once. Uh, making a martini is uh, the way it is. Is you you get gin and and stir it, not not shake it, and um, then you say a toast to the man who invented vermouth. Oh, that that works. Yeah, that may know. be that may be what I was trying to remember. Okay, another question: Which is the better city, New York City or Washington D.C., and why? Ah, uh, uh, Washington D.C. is much better in most respects, and especially for someone who's lived a life like I have, which is pretty sedentary and very family-oriented because I think it's very much easier to raise a family and have a relatively comfortable life in Washington than it would be in New York. And there's one other factor that I was just mentioning to someone else the other day, and she didn't agree with me, but... Um, now she's dead to you. Yeah, now she's... <laughs> I'm going to put a hex on her. So... Washington, weirdly enough, for people like us, is by far the most hospitable city in probably the world. Yeah. But you go to Chicago and you – there aren't very many people who think like us. There may be people who are conservatively inclined, or right. some, but they're not obsessed with things the way we are in Washington, you know, yeah. who actually care about politics, care about cultural things in terms of conservatism. But because the American people keep sending Republicans to Washington, they have to be tolerated here. And around that Republican um, base has become, you know, has built this infrastructure that, that we live where there are lots and lots of people who think like we do. And now that could be bad or good depending on the circumstance, but it makes for a much more comfortable life. Right. And also if you're 
inclined to have these kinds of conversations about things. Right. It's just hard to find. Like, you can sit down at a bar here and have the odds of you being able to have an interesting conversation with the person next to you about the stuff. I'm not saying an interesting conversation in the in the global sense. Right? Absolutely. I mean, if you're fascinated with sports, there's basically no bar in the country you couldn't sit at and ask and have a good right. conversation. Or if you're fascinated with Wall Street, much better to be in New York. But if you care about sort of politics and 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 even philosophy and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, just the odds of you having an interesting or at least a useful conversation with somebody right. is right. much greater here. Now, if I were a gearhead or, you know, a guy really into cars, I wouldn't like living here. Right, right. But, like, when I first moved to Washington in the 90s, I was one of, I know you know the type, I was one of these jerks who would complain about how Washington stinks compared to New York, right? And, oh, I'm not going to stay here, I'm going back, blah, 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 blah. And I ended up changing my mind for exactly the reasons that you have, right? That this is, once you get some of your oats out of you and once you Mm -hmm. are um, looking at settling down and and living a professional life and having a family and all that, it's just a better place to live. New York is one of the greatest cities in the world if you're young and poor or old and rich. But anything in the middle is really tough. Right. And But one of the things I thought was sort of fascinating is, because as you know, this is a recurring theme in a lot of like the Washingtonian every few years will have some piece about New York versus D.C., whatever. And I, it's always struck me that the New York versus D.C. conversation is a lot like the great Harvard-Cornell rivalry that everyone at Cornell knows about <laughs> and no one at Harvard does, you know? Right, right, right. But New York is a – I'm much more down on New York than I used to be because mm. uh, it's becoming so homogenized and and, yeah. and gentrified. I was fine with them getting rid of crime, but it's like getting rid of the delis that bother me. Yeah, yeah. It's know? weird to go to Manhattan and see a pot belly. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, no, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be out in the mall in Hackensack. <laughs> no, that's true. When I was growing up, there were no, almost, I mean, there's McDonald's and Burger King, but there were basically very few national chains yeah, anywhere. Yeah. And now it's just, national chains are the only ones who can afford the rent. Oh, yeah. And it, it's really depressing how it feels like it's the mallification of New York. And again, I'm glad they got rid of the, Razor blade wielding tranny hookers from from Times Square, mm. but I'm not sure they had to be replaced with Mickey Mouse. You know, <laughs> somebody told me, and this may just be conservative wishful thinking because everybody's uh, conservative wants Bill Blasio to fall on his face in the city to go down the toilet so Rudy Giuliani or somebody can come and rescue it with good conservative policies. But somebody told me the other day that the squeegee men are back. I haven't seen them because I haven't driven in the city in a while, but homelessness is just through the roof in the city. I mean, mm. It's unbelievable. Um, Here, too. Yeah. It feels worse in New York, but, but that may be because most of my trips to New York now are through Penn Station. Yeah. And and that's just, I mean, it, it might as well be a a train yard in 1890 San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, just the hobos everywhere kind uh, of thing, you know. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip my question of what your opinion of Bigfoot erotica is. Because um, uh, we know, I mean, people know that that's a sideline of yours, but, you know, we don't. <laughs> um, I guess I got to... It's soft erotica. <laughs> it's, I don't want to be accused of having any of that raunchy stuff. Um, it's actually, you know, it's it's if you go to Amazon and you search for Bigfoot erotica, pages and pages and pages... How do you know this? How did you discover it? Let me ask that. <laughs> it was late at night. Um you know, I don't know. I don't remember now. Uh, I wouldn't remember either. Yeah. Uh, let's just say mistakes were made. <laughs> I, maybe I typed in the wrong thing. Maybe I typed in something about Bigfoot. I can't quite remember. But anyway, uh, 
apparently there are people who fantasize about a creature even more hirsute than John Podoritz coming into their tent and spiriting them away. <laughs> um, uh, John's not going to be listening to this, is he? You no, know, but he'll hear about this and he'll be mad. But I, I got to prepare. Oh, that's the thing. I'm preparing for this roast that I'm doing right, in New York. Right. So uh, really important question. What is the worst thing about working for Steve Hayes? You know, you, you'd asked me before to, to see if I could come up with some lines, and I did, but they're all obscene. And I don't think the commentary crowd would go for it. All right. Well, later we'll um, yeah. we'll judge that. Worst thing about uh, working with Steve Hayes uh, does not exist. There is there is no bad thing working about working for my boss. Uh huh. I he's, just can't. I could rack my brain. Not only is he a handsome man, he's a powerful. He's man. He's a handsome man. <laughs> I don't like it when he has a goatee. Yeah. I prefer the full beard. Yeah. I think the the goatee is not. Really well, I know you've had a goatee in the past. Well, I know we both moved to full beards at the same time, which is kind of creepy. Yeah, we get, we get mistaken for each other quite a bit. Uh, oh, do you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I um, I talked about that when Steve was here, but um, I've had conversations with very important, prominent people that you've heard of who've talked to me for ten minutes about how great my Dick Cheney book was. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that was Dick Cheney, probably, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, I used to get confused with Andrew Sullivan all the time just because of the name, not because we look yeah. alike. Oh, I get I get confused for Jeffrey Goldberg a lot with all oh, those yeah. lines. Yeah, right? Right. I, I get he gets a lot of my anti-Semitic email, and I get a lot of his. So <laughs> um, you share your anti-Semites every now and then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every now and then we'll forward. Hey, do you remember yeah. that guy who's out in Milwaukee? And, yeah. <laughs> all right, so you've known John Podoritz is the host of this thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you can tell tales out of school about John. The hirsute John Podoritz. Is that is that the word you used? That was the word I used. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I never have the nerve to do that. But partially that's because I, I work for him, too. Well, there's a there's a running gag on the podcast I do with John because we did Harry Shave as one of our products that we would sell. Yeah. And uh, and I would make these continuing jokes about how it's the best razor possible for shaving John Podoritz's back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, John's going to be pissed at me, but, you know. Well, if he's already heard it, then he's already heard it. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't matter. But there's some jokes you don't want revisited. Yes, <laughs> I, I guess that's true. Yeah, once on a podcast is enough, because that's for infinity anyway. Right? That's right. It never it's, go away. It's going out. One day, aliens will uh, discover it, like our television signals. Yes. And assume our civilization is built around these things. You know, the thing about John is, and now this is all going to sound... Um, Even more obsequious? Yeah, ridiculous. So maybe I won't say it. But, what, you know, if I... I, I feel sorry for people who only know him from his Twitter feed, which is very good and very yeah. funny and all that stuff. But, you know, he, there's a, he, he's a very sweet guy. I mean, he probably he wouldn't like that either to hear that. But he is. He's just a, a wonderful, sweet guy with a huge heart. And um, But I guess Twitter just sort of brings out things. Well, Twitter's terrible. I mean, I'm on Twitter, too, and it's... it's, it's... You don't seem to do as much of it, though. John John loses his temper more easily than yeah, I do, yeah. um, um, which is not to say that I don't lose my temper. But and you're just a lurker on Twitter, right? You don't. Yeah, yeah. I go on. I go on. Um, but uh, I've seen the finest minds of my generation destroyed by Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg wrote that. All right. So this raises another question I actually legitimately wanted to ask. So you don't go on. You, you go on Twitter, but you don't use it, which is sort of the equivalent of watching TV but not going on. And you don't go on TV. Right, uh, I mean, very rarely. Not very much. Not very much. I uh, was this a conscious decision from the beginning? Well, you know, like I'll it? tell you. Uh, this might 
uh, over the story might overemphasize the kind of revelatory nature of what hit me. But I was once on um, Hardball when I used to do a lot of TV, and it was during the Clinton years. And as I recall it, the um, some new crisis of the century revelation had happened. Uh, I think it might have been during the Lewinsky scandal, and. You know, you, you go on that set with Matthews and you kind of have to wear a smock because, it's, you know, he's spraying it yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just unpleasant. I thought about bringing sunglasses one time, but just to, <laughs> But anyway, so he's blathering away and spraying every which way and he says, Okay, so Ferguson, what is Mrs. Clinton going to think about that? You know, whatever this revelation was. And my mind, which doesn't usually work very quickly, quickly assessed the situation and said, if I say the obvious, which is I have no yeah. fucking idea. Yeah. I've never even laid eyes on the woman, which I hadn't to yeah. that point, I think. Then I'm never coming back. Yeah. On the other hand, I really do have no fucking idea yeah, of yeah, what yeah. Mrs. Clinton would think about this. So I said, I chose my career over. And I said, well... Chris, what I'm hearing is, <laughs> and then went on to some, you know, she's upset or something yeah, yeah. like that. But afterwards, I felt dirty. I, I want to take a shower, yeah. not just because I was covered in in his, you know, expectorant. Effluvia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, just because, like, shit, I, I don't want to do this for a living. This is not. Yeah. And um, so that, that sounds kind of high-minded. And, and I'm. No, it's, it gets TV, back to the beginning, which is why people like you, is that you kind of have. You've been fairly well, fearless, of, you know. It's kind of like TV's like, uh, or pundit TV is kind of like Twitter in that it it sort of finds your worst traits and then aggravates them, you know. Can. And um, so I didn't really have the control over myself to, to be good on TV. And I, I never really was particularly good on TV. But if, if um, like, I would do anything for Brian Lamb if Brian Lamb asked yeah. me to come on and stand on my head I'd, because he's a great American and... And so damn sexy. Yeah, and so, yeah. <laughs> um, Not very hirsute anymore, though. No, no. Um, I, but the, 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 I talked to Steve about this. This is one, a big complaint that Steve and I have, have about punditry in the age of Trump, is to have watched in real time how many people say things they don't believe to be true in order to stay in the good graces of the regime, as it were, has been profoundly depressing. Yes. And... And as I pointed out to Steve, which he got even more depressed because he hadn't realized it, what's even more depressing is that what, you, what, what were outrageous and deliberate lies a year ago are now said sincerely yeah. because people have drunk the Kool-Aid and they've to live with themselves, they've convinced themselves that, you know, the comrade Trump will deliver the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen <laughs> east of the Urals. Five years from now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess we should close on a depressing note. Yeah, um, yeah, it's always good to be downbeat. Yeah, it, it, no, it, it actually is depressing. It's the most depressing thing um, about Washington now. And in a sense, it kind of makes me look back. I moved here in 1985, and as I, you know, I've had an extremely fortunate, lucky life. But and I made tons of great friends. That was the other thing you know, we were talking about. There's a kind of community of people yeah. here, and you know, I see people I've known for 30 years, and I know. I know they yeah. know better. Yeah. And it, it, I just don't even like to think about it, to tell you the truth. If I think about it too long, I just, it's, you know. So it's funny. Do um, you know Tevi Troy? Yeah. Yeah. So Tevi 
and some Jewish. Tevi is seriously Jewish. I am not seriously Jewish, but I have the most Jewish sounding name this side of Shlomo Abramowitz. Um, and uh, Tevi and a couple of friends of his, we would go out for for drinks. This is 25 years ago, so don't hold it against them. Almost 30 years ago, and they used to play this game of who among the uh, who among the goys would hide us if the Nazis came. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I never liked the game, right? Even though, again, these were immature 20-somethings after a few beers. It was not a serious thing. But I never liked the game because of what it implied about America. I never thought that this sure. would happen here and blah, 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 blah. I do not think um, that Donald Trump is Hitler by any stretch of the imagination. First of all, Hitler could have gotten Obamacare repealed. <laughs> um, but uh, He would have had to burn down the Capitol building. Um, yeah, but he could get it done, right? So... No, but seriously, I, 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 I think policy-wise, there's a lot of stuff that Trump has done that we can celebrate or we can endorse or, or that people can look to to justify their support of him and all the rest, you know, from judges on down. But watching it all unfold in real time, mm-hmm. it kind of felt like a sort of farcical Tom Wolf dry run for what would... I mean, imagine if Donald Trump had Pat Buchanan's brain mm-hmm. in there... Which is not to say that Pat Buchanan is Hitler, but like I just mean a kind of let's plan this out strategic or even Bill Clinton's brain. If you really, really cared about stuff. Yeah. If he actually had an ideological agenda and he actually knew how government worked, but he could still command this kind of populist loyalty, we'd be in a very different country right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so I remember talking to friends. I was like, look, again, he's not Hitler. You know, he's nothing like that. But at the same time, I now know that like if Hitler comes, I'm not going to go to Sean Hannity first to hide <laughs> in his rumpus room, you know? <laughs> right, know? right. I mean, there are people I know who are the place to go, you know? Right. And and there are a lot of people who aren't that these days. Um, do you think we recover from all this stuff? I don't uh, see how, but I do think that we will. I just don't know how. Um, and maybe that's just my sunny disposition. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it will be different. It, it will not have been without effect, and it will probably have had a very bad and demoralizing effect uh, on um, everybody, but particularly on, I think, the people who not only, as you say, supported him in, you know, his his judicial appointments and a tax cut or whatever they cook up, but people who, because they supported those things, started to turn it into a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. And... The conservative movement was never a movement run by a cult, you know, right. like a cult. And that yeah. that's, uh, was one of the great things about it. It got close enough with Reagan because I remember in the Reagan years, people were justifying all kinds of stuff yeah. that Reagan, as a Reaganite, shouldn't have done. But this is, this is so far beyond anything yeah. I ever saw like that. All right. So last question, just because it's become a thing. Uh, I've asked everybody so far what the most surprising thing about them What's what's the most surprising thing about Washington that you've discovered that people would be themselves surprised by? I'll give you a, while you, okay, I'll give you yeah. a help to think of the answer. Uh, ben Sass said, how many senators like to walk around the Senate gym naked? Uh, <laughs> There's Yuval, a good reason not to run for office. <laughs> Yuval Levin, echoing my own views and probably yours too, was he was shocked to discover how really nobody knows what the hell's going on. Um, that, uh, and let the listeners know, Andy is nodding vociferously, that everyone has these plans. They think that they're running things. No one's really running things. It's a cacophony. Steve Hayes, 
his was that it wasn't so much what he found so surprising, it's that he thought people would be surprised to know that this whole, oh, you're just taking these positions to go to Georgetown cocktails party thing (laughs) is such horseshit, right? And that there aren't Georgetown cocktail parties. I hate to break it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, if they are, they're miserable affairs. I mean, I I, I don't, you know, oh, let me talk about Chris Matthews spitting on people. Spend an evening eating across from Larry Summers. (laughs) You'll be pulling breadcrumbs out of your eyes. You know, Um, I don't want to do any of that kind of stuff. And but the and the idea that the people who are doing writing are the people who want to go to Georgetown cocktail parties. It's a complete sociological mismatch, right? I mean, the the whole point of us writing is that we don't want to go to those things um, for the most part, right? So anyway, what would you pick as, as? Well, this is a variation on what you've all said, which which is. Uh, I spent a year writing speeches for the first President Bush, and he was in his re-election campaign, and it was clear to a lot of people that he was going to lose, and everybody was panicking all the time. And all of a sudden, I get a call where he has to give this big health care speech, and we have to talk about our health care plan. <laughs> and I said, we don't have a health care <laughs> one of the reasons he's in so much trouble. He goes, no, call over to HHS. They'll have some stuff, and do that, and, and we'll, we'll do the speech based around that. So I became the author of the Bush healthcare. <laughs> now, I, I could barely find my way to the doctor's office, much less design a new healthcare system. But that wasn't just, that's not really an extreme thing, and it yeah. wasn't peculiar to that very panicky, confused campaign. I mean, this is going on all the time. People are flying by the seat of their pants and making stuff up on, on the go, and that's one of the great arguments against big government. That's right. Yeah. And, or certainly powerful government. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, Andy, this was great. Delighted to have you here. Thank um, you for having me. I will look forward to the more truthful answers about what a horrible <laughs> person Steve Hayes is uh, once the microphones go off. And uh, thanks for being you. Anytime. All right. So that was great with Andy. Or at least I thought it was. I'm a huge Andy Ferguson fanboy, and if I uh, had planned this better, I probably would have not ended on such a depressing note, maybe ended with the martini conversation, but such is the wages of these things. Which brings me to a, an important point. We got a lot of com- not complaints, suggestions, criticisms, whatnot, from listeners, including my friend Chris Steyerwalt at Fox News, who's a f- apparently a fan of the podcast, which is very nice. And his advice was, Stop talking about the mechanics of the podcast. Just do the podcast. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And, of course, I am, by bringing up this criticism, and even though I say I'm going to follow it, I'm, in fact, violating this criticism because I am, once again, talking about the mechanics of the podcast. But it's a point well taken. We are going to, you know, we are going to, do, we are going to ease into not talking about this anymore. And we're going to ease into me complaining about how I don't know what I'm doing, and instead of going cold turkey, because I still don't know exactly what I'm doing, and there are a couple still mechanic things that we need to talk about. For instance, I've decided I, even though, you know, true, true fact, as Casey Stengel would say, I have never listened to this podcast, but uh, I'm already sick of the the Spock Zarathustra music, as are a lot of other listeners. And so, Michael, you actually had an idea. This is Michael Pratt. Uh, what's the name of your podcast again? Filler Words Podcast. Filler Words. Yep. And you had an idea how we can solve this problem without violating the great National Review rule of not spending too much money. 
Well, we are sure that there are lots of talented listeners out there who would love to have their original music, originally composed, originally recorded music, featured as the soundtrack for the podcast. And so if you are one of those people, we've set up an email account, theremnantpod at gmail.com, and submit your MP3s to us and we'll take a look at them and hopefully next week have one on the show. And we will give you, if we end up using yours, we will give you glorious credit. Yes. You can put it on your CV or you can have a tattoo or whatever it is you want to celebrate it. And that way we'll get something original and fun out there uh, for that. And uh, there was, was there, oh, also you should use this, theremnantpod at gmail.com for comments, suggestions, criticism, why, in, information about wire transfers to my account. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to advertise, you should send me those emails as well. Uh, this is probably the last podcast without advertising segments on it. Uh, there's much work being done. I am hoping that some of my um, favorite brown liquors will advertise on this podcast. Uh, I actually got, a, I got an email from one of the guys in advertising at National Review asking me about would I be, as a journalist, comfortable promoting certain products. And... Uh, and he was reaching out to some of the uh, various single malt scotch people. And, nice. And so I, I made it very clear that I, I welcome all advertisers, but I could not, in good faith, plug things like Lagavulin, mm-hmm. which is one of the more popular single malts, because it's I don't like the peaty stuff. Yeah. And the uh, and Lagavulin and those kinds of things, they taste to me like you took your lawnmower bag and made tea out of it. I don't like it. I like the sweeter ones, the sherry cask finish or the port finish, um, things like Balvini, um, the La Santa and Quinta Ruban things. And so I, you know. So are, are you bourbon too? Or? I'm not a bourbon guy. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to like bourbon more in part because whenever I say I don't like bourbon on Twitter, people yeah. get very mad at me and they, they basically say I, I don't like America. I can understand that. The, the bourbon bots. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, People don't realize that Kentucky actually is like a mini Russia, and it's got these. It's set up these bots to defend bourbon at all costs. Uh, I do like some bourbons more than others, and I'm perfectly willing to try. So, if there's a bourbon company out there that wants to seduce me into the world of bourbon, uh, by all means, get in touch. Send us a box of that. Yeah, yeah, several boxes. <laughs> um, this has been a very alcoholic podcast. Uh, yeah, well, look, I mean, there was a lot of restraint between me and Andy that we only talked about cocktails as much as we did. All right, so those are the two things. Uh, if you've got questions, comments, the remnant podcast at gmail.com and the remnant uh, pod. The remnant pod, sorry, at gmail.com. Oh, also, Jack pointed out to me that um, this is actually the sixth episode of this podcast. So I just flagrantly, it was fake news at the beginning of this when I said it was the fifth. I apologize in advance. I know that this cost you a lot of time. Uh, how was your Halloween, guys? It was uh, for me. It was very uneventful. I, we both worked late yeah, last night, so there wasn't. We tried to dress the dog up. He wasn't really into that. Um, when you say we both, you mean your significant other? Yes, my wife and I. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not Jack and I. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, is this some sort of Kevin Spacey yeah. thing going on here? <laughs> uh, no comment. Um, and uh, people, if you ever seen the episode of Friends where Phoebe gets a bad cold? And all of a sudden, people like her singing because it's all bluesy and hoarse and deep and that kind of thing. Jack uh, has it a cold, and I have actually told him earlier today that he should try and keep it because I like his voice so much better now. <laughs> uh, how was your Halloween, Jack? 
it was uh, it was a great Halloween. Uh, I went to the Exorcist steps in Georgetown to finish reading The Exorcist at the location where its climax takes place. And while I was doing that, I took pictures for the various people who came there on Halloween, uh, staged a dramatic reading of the climax for a pair of people who asked me to do that, told a, either a priest or someone dressed as a priest to be careful going down the stairs, <laughs> and discussed movie trivia with some interested guy who walked by. It was really the best place to be on Halloween in D.C. is The Exorcist Steps. I, I, I tell you, when it turns out that you're a serial killer years from now, um, I won't be able to say he was this quiet, normal guy. <laughs> Darn it! So, how how long in total did you spend by yourself at the Halloween at the Exorcist steps? Well, it took me. I, I got to the steps with about thirty pages left in the book, uh-huh. so it didn't take me that long to finish the book. Uh, but after that, I just sort of hung out. I don't know for like another hour, so it's probably there for an hour and a half total. Okay. Met some nice people. That's uh, warded off some demons, I think. At, at, at what time did this process begin? Uh, like 6.20. Okay. Uh, and I was there until like 8 or so. And you live on Capitol Hill. How'd you get home? I took a bus and then the metro. Okay. All right. So my Halloween, uh, I, I'm going to take a little more time to process that. My <laughs> Halloween, uh, longtime Twitter followers of mine and some corner followers of mine might know this, but... The Goldbergs have uh, dressed up as zombies every year for the last f- five or six years at least. And this zombie process has actually gotten my daughter really interested in theatrical makeup. And she actually did it as her eighth grade year-long class project, which was great. She learned – there's this wonderful makeup artist named um, uh, Robert Riggler and, and – he actually did a little tutorial with her about how to do this stuff, and she can now make you know pieces of glass protrude from your face, and she knows how to do the difference between a uh, like she can make it looks like bones come out of your skin from wow. like fractures and stuff. It's really creepy stuff. And I have this my beautiful little girl, and like she just makes herself utterly disfigured. Um, she knows how to do that zombie thing where it makes it look like your lips have been ripped off, and you can see the full teeth. But anyway, so Lucy's had mono, which has been absolutely brutal. And then she actually got flat out sick, got cold on top of it. So she couldn't go trick-or-treating, which I was relieved by because she looks like she could be 18. And it's just a little weird to go around trick-or-treating with your kid um, at this stage. And it's a little weird for her to be trick-or-treating. But she wanted to maintain the tradition of this stuff. And so she made us up. Um, I was essentially the joker. It was all last minute. So I had the big scars along my mouth for the grin. We didn't have a green wig, so instead I got a big orange wig and put on um, um, an orange prison jumpsuit, so it kind of looked right. My wife was the clown from It. Pennywise. Pennywise. And my daughter was just this hideous zombie clown creature. And um, we scared the living hell (laughs) out of the kid. Because everyone else in our neighborhood is like, I live in this sort of upscale neighborhood, and it's like, you know, no bullying. Everyone's nice to each other. People lots are, of cocktail parties. Lots of cocktail parties. People are dressed, you know, little kids are dressed as princesses and whatever. And my wife would wait by the window when we saw the kids coming up across our lawn, which is full of, two, you know, headstones and zombies and, and animatronic clowns. We kind of go all out on this stuff. And when they walk past our window, my wife would pound on the glass and scream at them. And we made these kids like almost wet their pants. And then they came up and I would open the door. Um, and if you go to my Twitter feed, you can see pictures of me. 
and I would take out my fake chainsaw and <laughs> jump out on the patio. Brutal. So it was it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Sounds like your daughter is uh, potentially going to become the next Dick Smith. The he was the makeup artist in The Exorcist. Is that right? Yeah. Everything comes back to The Exorcist for you. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned on the Ricochet Glob Culture podcast yesterday that it was one of your favorite horror movies. It is. It, it's a great so. movie. And as, as you know, um, you've written about it, and you've read what I've written about it for the book coming out. It's, um, it's a much deeper movie than any normal, than most normal horror movies. It really has a lot to do with the sort of the, the cultural trends of the 1970s where there was this, this spirit of romanticism where people mm-hmm. were rebelling against the rationality of, of of the sort of scientific age and all that kind of stuff and the fact that it goes to Catholicism rather than some Rousseauian BS is kind of nice um, but it's dark dark yeah and movie. There, there's more I can this is too great a discussion to have here with the time we have left but there's more of that kind of thing in the book itself I bet it was cut yeah. some of it was cut out of the movie for for sensible reasons. As, so, a, as an alma mater of the best Catholic university in the district, the Catholic University of America, we used to try to co-opt. That's, 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 that's your only claim? <laughs> is, is the best Catholic university in the district? Well, we would always just call it the Catholic University of America. Uh, sort of like, if, if Hugh Hewitt were here, he would say something about the Ohio State University. Yeah, right. yeah. but I mean, you're, you're basically making a shot at Georgetown because it's yes. basically not Catholic. Anymore. Right. Yeah, right. And the, the author of The Exorcist was very, in, he, he died earlier this year, uh, not by falling down those stairs, uh, but he was very bitter about the turning of Georgetown away from Catholicism in his later years. So I am, um, one of my favorite sources of mirth and jocularity is when they take movies and they take the bad language, which we had some in this podcast and I should have warned people up front. And then when they want to broadcast for television, they have to dub over it, right? And so it's, um, what is it that they do it's, in... It's an exercise of bad lip reading. Yeah. yeah. So like in Die Hard, it's... Um, I can't remember the yippee yippee ki Yeah, I just the the when Snakes on a Plane was first aired on FX, it was something like I'm tired of these uh, Monday through Friday snakes on this monkey flying plane. <laughs> That's right, something like that. So in in Scarface, there was at one point Tony Montana is explaining to Manny his, his brother, and he says, "This whole country is one giant female genitalia waiting to be uh, uh, coitist." <laughs> and, right and and uh, and so when they played it on broadcast TV, they changed it to "This country is one giant chicken waiting to be plucked." <laughs> and what made me think of it was when Saturday Night Live did its Exorcist skit, they uh, had Gilda Radner play the Reagan character, you know, the Linda Blair character, who went on to a wonderful career in women's prison movies. Um, by the way, uh, and At one point you're going to have to explain what is, is with you in women's prison movies someday. That'll be a bonus, maybe. a holiday podcast um and so in the movie the possessed little girl says your mother sucks certain things in hell and they change it for gilda radner to your mother shucks socks and tells (laughs) (laughs) and i always thought that was brilliant so do we have any other questions comments concerns from previous episodes of this thing people are happy People are happy. People are happy. All right. Well, yeah. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I got to say, my problem right now with this thing is I, the weekly format makes me feel like I have to do something big and important every week. Um, and I used to work for this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was a syndicated columnist, but he only wrote one column a week. And the problem was every week he had to think of the one major yeah. issue that would settle the 
argument, you know, for all time on something. And my dad, who was a newspaper editor or newspaper syndicate editor, he always used to say that people who had the easiest time were the people who wrote every single day because that way you could just write about whatever the hell you wanted, whatever got your juices flowing. And if there was something more important the next day, you wrote about it the next day. And this weekly format makes me feel like I'm supposed to come up with, like, this great guest or this great conversation every week. And I'm wondering if it might be easier down the road to sort of up the frequency, particularly if we can sell ads for it. Yeah. Um, but I'm open to uh, contrary points of view from, from listeners um, via email. That's what the substandard does. Uh, it's called the substandard because it's an inferior podcast to this one, by the way. Um, well, the funny thing is, so people don't know this, but uh, the nickname for the standard for 10, 15 years, my wife used to work in the in the orbit of the standard. She didn't work at the standard, but she sort of shared offices with those guys. And they all used to call the weekly standard the substandard. I mean, that was the joke. And so there's that's the, I'm assuming that at least Last and Sonny know this, that yeah. they are pick, they're, 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 they're being transgressive with an old joke about the weekly standard. Uh, at some point, we should get at least Sonny or those guys on here and we can talk to them. I kind of, I kind of do feel like, you know, the weekly substandard is, it's sort of like where the, the, the warden of Shawshank prison threatened to send Andy Dufresne. <laughs> if he, if he talked back again, you know, down, cast you down with the sodomites and pederasts or whatever it there is. There's uh, winding or railing and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. Uh, <laughs> um, man, it just keeps coming back to demons with me. I don't know what it is. Clearly. Um, so anyway, uh, that's all we got for this week. And thank you for tuning in. Please keep giving it reviews. Please, if you've never listened to it before, subscribe. That kind of matters. And um, we'll see you here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> <laughs>